1: So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going
0: to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, December 22nd. I'm your co-host, Allison Gill, and with me, as usual, is my co-host, Andrew Torres.
1: Always a pleasure. We are closing in on that magical 50th episode. We do something special for that. But first, uh, it is time to thank our new patrons, who are Madeline S., Matthew, Cynthia Fell, and Ride to Vote. Thank you so much for supporting the show.
0: Yes, that's right. You literally make the show possible. And if you'd like to get a shout-out on the show, plus the ad-free feed, plus our bonus stuff, head over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E-4-5-P-O-D. Sign up for as little as a buck an episode. And now, on with the show. Woo! All right, so we got a complaint filed. <laughs> uh,
1: it oh, looks like... we do. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, you know, I, I thought that the, the you know the Durham Sussman indictment was I- idiotic, but this is the the Trump suit against Tish James is like, hold my beer.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right, this is a complaint. For declaratory and injunctive relief, it's 30 pages long. It's a filing submitted by Trump attorney Alina Haba on behalf of Trump himself and the Trump organization against Letitia James in the office of the New York Attorney General. And as you taught me, Andrew, if I scroll to the end, we get the prayer for relief and the jury demand. And so I can understand. How can he ask for relief if no decision has been made and no suit has been (laughs) filed by the New York attorney general.
1: So, so good question. I mean, let's be clear for our listeners, lawyers and non-lawyers alike. You can sue for a declaratory judgment to declare the rights of parties that have a relationship before uh, that relationship has deteriorated. Right. Um, That that's not an inherently impossible thing. Um, and in fact, it's something that I've done in my career, right? And so the, the way in which you think about that as um, kind of a baseline is um, think of my client, right? My client was a hospital that uh, had a contract with a waste disposal company. And the waste disposal company was um, not uh, disposing of medical waste in an appropriate way, right? Right. And so what my client said was, look, I know we've got three more years stuck with these guys, uh, but uh, we think they're in breach of the contract. Um, We're going to go to court and we're going to say we want a declaratory judgment that we can get out of this thing, right? Because they're letting medical waste pile up on our, uh, you know, on on our back docks and uh, in our loading bays. And like, that's not safe. So- that's the kind of, I want you to just sort of keep that in mind as that's the kind of situation in which a declaratory judgment is appropriate, right? Mm, in which okay. you have parties that have a live dispute in which you are looking to the court to adjudicate the rights of the parties. Um, and if you don't, if you didn't do this, then, right, what would happen would be we would have breached the the contract. And then, you know, there would have been a lawsuit on us for non-payment, right? So, in other words, that that harm is kind of real and immediate and not speculative. And as soon as I start using those kinds of words, you you realize how idiotic this this Trump lawsuit is, right? This is um, I have not been indicted uh, in the Southern District of New York, uh, but I'm pretty sure that's coming. <laughs> And I want a court to say that that's a bad court thingy, and uh, well, not, he's the not, southern, get that. not the southern,
0: not the southern district,
1: but no, yeah, but, in state you are. I'm sorry that this this lawsuit even, is filed in the northern district, and so uh, by contrast, I was immediately thinking. SDNY, but no, you are 100% correct that it is But not even Tish
0: James can draw, Tish James. bring an indictment, right? I mean, it's a Manhattan district attorney, but I guess maybe, I mean, because he's not named in this at all.
1: Yep, I, it, 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 there are so many problems <laughs> with, with this lawsuit, but but not the least of which it looked like. The Supreme Court has made this very, very clear, right? This is a 2007 case called Medimmune, right? Um, that That basically says, uh, you have to rise to the level uh, of an article 3 actual case or controversy in order to have a valid complaint for declaratory judgment right And that means you can't just say I'm concerned that somebody might do a bad thing to me in the future and I want you to tell them not to do that bad thing in the future. If that's the case, the courts are going to say to you like, you know what man like if that bad thing happens, come back, we'll listen. But uh, but we're not going to issue any relief right now. It really has to be. There's an immediate dispute. And um, and we want the court to 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 resolve that. Um, And uh, yeah, uh, not being indicted is not the kind of thing that typically rises to the level of uh, immediate dispute.
0: All right. Well, so let's talk about this prayer for relief, right? What are the <laughs> what we've got A B C D E F G, right? Um, what what are the basics here that that they're looking for?
1: Yeah, and and again, this is weird because typically um you you don't say you, you don't plead a complaint like count one, First Amendment, right? <laughs> right? Like you 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 look for you have to have a particular cause of action, and you have to follow the appropriate procedures with respect to that cause of action in order to, to, to bring your lawsuit. Like, so, you know, perfect example of that, right? Like um, your state attorney general is um, empowered to bring public nuisance claims, right? And did so with respect to uh, the tobacco and secondhand smoke cases. But y- you couldn't say, like, hey, I think secondhand smoke is a bad thing. Therefore, I want Philip Morris to pay me a million billion dollars, right? Like, you you, you have to have both standing and a cognizable cause of action. So this lawsuit says, uh, it, that first, it wants a declaratory judgment that uh, Tish James has violated plaintiffs' rights, privileges, and immunities under the first, fourth, and 14th amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Um, it wants a declaratory judgment that, Uh, The investigations constitute impermissible state action and abuse of process. We're going to talk about what abuse of process is that harness state police power to retaliate against, injure and harass a political opponent in violation of the U.S. Constitution, federal law, state law and or common law. Um, Hint, uh, there's if your political opponent has committed a crime showing that you are politically opposed to the person who's committed a crime is in no way a defense to why you should not be prosecuted for said crime. But in any event, for a preliminary and permanent injunction pursuant to sixteen twenty eight U.S.C. 1651A, 1983, Rule 65 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and Local Rule 65.1 requiring defendant to cease or at minimum appropriately limit all ongoing investigations of plaintiffs pending resolution of this action and for preliminary and permanent injunction pursuant to those same, uh, statutory authorities, um, from defendants ongoing unbounded investigations and enjoining her from being involved in any manner in any civil or criminal action against plaintiffs. And then there's some boilerplate stuff, um, so, uh, so that's, so there you go.
0: All right. Well, let, let's, let's break those down. First of all, violation of Trump's rights under the first, fourth and 14th amendments. Count one is the violation of the 14th amendment. Okay. Uh, and uh, Trump alleges that Tish James violated Trump's due process by maliciously weaponizing the state police power of the attorney general by commencing and continuing baseless, baseless investigations <laughs> and fishing expeditions. Against the plaintiffs, and by commencing the investigations against the plaintiffs in bad faith, and without a legally sufficient basis, and uh, Trump bases that on nothing, really. Uh, I mean, d- d- <laughs> he says that James prejudged his guilt and made improper comments, but doesn't show how she did that. There's no the, meat to the bo- on the bone.
1: This here. is this is astonishingly badly put, right? Because at, at every stage of the process that Trump describes here, there are Fifth Amendment checks, right? Like, in other words, you you convene a grand jury, that grand jury says, we believe there is probable cause to investigate a a potential violation of a crime, right? You you can't just, as a prosecutor, say, all right, well, I'm... I don't like Allison, so time to start an investigation, right? Like- well,
0: I would expect us to include something like, well, we have documents and emails telling her uh, from her telling her staff to impanel a grand jury to go after Trump because she hates Republicans or something. Like some sort of uh evidence but, that any of these are baseless and groundless investigations. You know what but, I mean? There's
1: no But 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 I want to I want to I want to push back even against that. And so you are correct that that does not exist here. There is, there is no evidence of that. There are no allegations that even meet that level of specificity. But I want to push back a little bit, right? Um, I do not know if you had um, a state's attorney, uh, attorney's general office that said, um, we think Republicans are complicit in X crime and so I want to investigate all Republicans who have committed crimes Y, Z, A, B, and C. I I, I do not know that that would necessarily be a, a, any kind of, there, you would have a remedy on that. And, and remember, we're talking about, you and I went through this in the Michael Flynn case. I filed a fucking amicus brief on this, right? This is the party that thinks that uh, prosecutorial discretion is unbounded, right? That that the prosecutor can just decide to charge whomever they want. Um, I think you have some kind of due process here, but I don't know that like political retaliation against members of your party who, who commit crimes rises to that level. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off.
0: Yeah, no, 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 no. The, the, I mean, uh, you know, I, that, I didn't say that. I said that I just hate Republicans or or because right. I'm a Democrat and I want to be the governor or, you know, something, something that might be improper. But like you said, even that might not rise um, to, to that.
1: But uh, and, 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 and I just again, because I because I think it's so easy that the other side is engaged in this kind of like cargo cult lawyering, right? That that sort of looks like it's actual legal pleadings, but it isn't. I I I I, I want to be clear here: the idea that a prosecutor would, on no evidence, open up an investigation against a political opponent. We already have built in checks against that, right? Right the, right. the checks against that are the the legal standards for impaneling a grand jury and, and the like. So yeah. yeah, yeah, that argument is just nonsense. And then uh, I don't know you want to, you want to start with first amendment count 2 talks about the first amendment
0: <laughs> hey, why didn't you go in order? Why is the count 1 the 14th and count uh, 2 the first amendment order of uh, rights remember <laughs> the, the only god awful movie I've enjoyed you, on. you have to start like I don't uh, understand why count 1 is in the first amendment count 2 is in the 4th amendment and count 3 is in the 14th <laughs> amendment but whatever you know I mean I guess you don't have to go in order
1: I, I, a fantastic plug and you are fantastic in the order of rights. Um, uh, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, God awful movies. So, um, if, if folks have not listened to that, they, they should go ahead and do that. Um, it, it look, it is not unreasonable. The, the way I plead and the way a lot of lawyers do, do this, um, is, uh, y- you lead off with what you think is your strongest argument, um, and, and so, you know, in a case that is, generally speaking, a, a breach of contract case, right? Like count one is going to be the breach of contract. So so I get, like, not following the order of rights. Uh, but I will tell you, um, count one is not great either. <laughs> in any event, uh, let's start with count two, since I decided we were going to start there. Trump alleges that Tish James violated his First Amendment rights two on that one by quote, continuing baseless investigations and fishing expeditions against plaintiffs was intended to stifle plaintiffs free speech because defendant disfavors, the political ideologies, perspectives, opinions, and or views held by Trump. Um, that's kind of an amazing series of clauses that are slammed together.
0: Yeah. So so basically he's claiming her investigation into his crimes stifles his free speech. Um, (laughs) And Trump also says she's infringing on his business's free speech. Do businesses have free speech?
1: Well, you know, corporations are people, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, None of this makes the slightest bit of sense. Look, like, uh, again the the idea and we're going to we're going to get into this when it comes to the abusive process because you you're going to see what differentiates this from a meritorious lawsuit right like it is conceivable to imagine using the power of your office to punish a political rival but what you have to show at that point is that your political is that is that the the, the person who is using process in bad faith, right, has abused some element of that process the, the argument of, well, I might be guilty, but the only reason you're looking at me is because you hate me. Right. Like, I mean, you know, that's 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 the like the I shot the sheriff argument. Right. Like I, it, it does not matter Right. If the authorities have always hated you, if you commit the crime.
0: Right. Like how Trump, uh, when he went after his political opponents and did favors for his political allies, he was obstructing justice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, Anyway, next up, Andrew, in no particular order, of course. (laughs) Count three, the Fourth Amendment. Here Trump calls James's subpoenas an unreasonable search and seizure. Again, alleging that Tish James is aware that she was on a fishing expedition uh, and subpoenaed him anyway, but offered no proof of that either.
1: So, so I, I, I mean, as a preliminary statement, right, like m- much of discovery is in fact a fishing expedition, right? Like it, it, it is right. You persuade a grand jury we think that there is evidence that a crime has potentially been committed and we'd like to go fishing and see what the evidence shows, right? Like that, that's a, that's a totally, uh, anyway. <laughs> because if this were true, all subpoenas
0: right. would be unreasonable search and seizure. Right.
1: When they don't know my connection between X and Y, like, yeah, they're fishing. They, they want to say like, we think you might have falsified your tax returns. Therefore we want to see your tax returns. And then what are they doing? They're fishing through my fucking tax returns to see if I've committed any crimes like that. uh, Anyway. But, but, but I, I I guess I want to go a little bit into detail here that, that like this dovetails with my point that all of these have procedural checks, right? So the, right. the, the argument on count three on violation of the Fourth Amendment um, is that defendant was aware that there was no legal or factual basis, justifiable legal or factual basis for the issuance of the subpoenas. Well, you know what? If a subpoena is issued without a justifiable legal or factual basis, there's a process in the law. You move to quash that subpoena, right? You, you say, hey, you've issued said subpoena. And we are moving to quash it because there is no justifiable legal or factual basis. Oh, is this guess one what? of
0: those things where we're going to get like, uh, why didn't you file a, yeah. a motion to squash the subpoena if you thought it was uh, <laughs> wrong? Like he, he seems to always come late to these legal parties. I mean, I remember in those election lawsuits, when, like every other minute it was like, you didn't say so at the time, you know,
1: I love I love the. Uh the colloquial motion to squash, because I imagine like <laughs> kind of the you know jolly green giant like stepping down on it. It's um, it's
0: because it's because I've had a correction or two uh, on several uh, occasions uh, in my good news and correction segment where somebody said they were squashing subpoenas. <laughs> so.
1: I, I I know I I couldn't I couldn't help but 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 bring it up. It's just it's delightful. But yeah, no that that uh, among the many arguments that will be deployed to dismiss this lawsuit without having to answer it is. Um, your remedy against a subpoena that is improperly issued is to move to quash the subpoena, right? Mm -hmm. Is not to come to the court for a declaration that the subpoena was a bad court thing. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all right, so that's that. Up next is the allegation that Tish James participated in an impermissible state action and an abusive process. And I've been teasing this. This is Mm -hmm. count four of the complaint. And uh, the allegation quote is, by issuing the above mentioned subpoenas again I already discussed that defendant intended to compel trump to discontinue his political career to hinder his bid for re-election in the 2020 presidential election and or to compel plaintiffs to see ce- that's trump and the trump org to cease business operations in the state of new york um again let me say this if that th- this is one of these where like the entirety of the response at law is, so what, right? Like, it was very, very clear when state's attorneys general filed suit against Philip Morris and the tobacco companies in the late 90s in connection with secondhand smoke, that their justification was to wring as much money out of Philip Morris, right? Or you might think about the, uh, the opioid cases against the Sacklers, right? Uh, it, it states' attorneys generals would be like, yeah, I would like to fucking drive Purdue Pharma out of business. Mm-hmm. I'd like to make sure the Sacklers never make another dime again. You know why? Because they committed crimes, mm-hmm. right? And so the the you could concede the entirety of this allegation of uh, she wanted to drive Donald Trump out of business. Well, yeah, if your business is artificially inflating your real estate – to defraud the public. I'd like to drive you out of business. Yeah,
0: Andrew, if I were responding Ugh. to this as a lawyer, I'd be like, and for, as to count 4, please see lawsuit against the Trump Foundation. The end.
1: I, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I I would like to. So, so this is totally incoherent in its conception, but but I want to I want to add it is also legally incoherent, right? And yeah. that is that the the allegation of abusive process and we We saw Sidney Powell and, and by and through her, you know, co-conspirator Howard Kleinhandler raise this same argument, right, against Dominion voting systems, right? Um, To say that abusive process means that you filed a lawsuit against me because you don't like me. That's not what abusive process means. No. Abusive process means that you have... File a lawsuit against someone because you don't like them. That's that's part one. And part two, that you have improperly used the process in order to gain an advantage. So let me give you an example of what that would mean, right? If I were to if I were to threaten to sue you because I hate you, I don't. I love you dearly. But thank, but you. Let's, thank you. But let's suppose, right? Uh it, it this goes sour and I threaten a lawsuit against you because I hate you. That's not abusive process. But suppose, because I know my lawsuit is bullshit, I don't actually file the lawsuit, but I do hire a process server and I give him a copy of the lawsuit and he shows up at your house and kicks in your door and says, this lawsuit's been filed against you and boom, here you go, you've been served right? Then I have abused the process, right? I have mm-hmm. used the process in a way that I know is inappropriate to further my personal vendetta against you. Mm-hmm. That's what abusive process means. And it is not present in, even in the allegations against Tish James. It is not abusive process to prosecute somebody you don't like. That's a, like, prosecutors don't like criminals. That's not a surprise. It, it is abusive process when you know you have misused the instrumentalities of your office. And there's there isn't even an allegation that she's done that. It's amazing.
0: No, no. And then count four goes on to allege that through her wrongful, malicious and egregious actions, defendants sought to harm plaintiffs without excuse or justification. Uh, I mean, I thought she just spent the last three counts telling us that the excuse was that she wanted to destroy his political career. Yeah,
1: the, the excuse or justification is we think you have committed fraud mm. uh, and we're trying to find that out. That by the way is not abusive process. No matter how much you dislike the person that you're using the process against um, mm-hmm. that, they, they, they also allege that James sought to promote her public image and further her political career to the detriment of Donald Trump. And I just want to say if using your job as a New York prosecutor uh, to further your political career were any kind of actionable conduct, then Rudy Giuliani would have been sued, you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, um,
0: I mean, we should ask Hillary Clinton how she feels about that.
1: Shockingly, like prosecutors. Being uh, in 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 many cases elected to their position, tend also to be interested in the political consequences of their position. And and look like I did, uh, you know I I picked Rudy Giuliani on purpose right like by all indications right his RICO lawsuits against the mafia in New York were uh, valid prosecutions. It 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 got him fame notoriety, which propelled him to the mayorship of New York. That's a hundred percent like that's what our system lets you do. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. And to me, this just sounds like Trump's mad that the person investigating his criminal behavior could make him look bad. Almost like, uh, hey, yeah, I killed a guy, but these cops went ahead and proved that I did it. And that's devastating to my reputation. (laughs) So I guess he's asking the courts to. Yeah, this is devastating to my case. Uh, so I, I guess he's asking the courts to immediately cease or limit the investigations because they're making him look bad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Right. So, um, it, it I, again, I mean, this is just, you know, finally it's a tiramisu of, of finally layered bits of nonsense, but, um, they're also asking, uh, for a, a jury trial, kind of a weird request, I guess, I guess they're thinking that, um, uh, you know, you get one uh, mega hat wearing idiot undercover on the jury and
0: in the northern uh, district of New York. Yeah.
1: Right. Who who the hell knows? On any issue so triable as of right pursuant to rule 38B of the federal rules of civil procedure. Um, remember that. Um, you, you do not automatically have, you automatically have, uh, the right to a trial by jury when it comes to, um, criminal offenses. Uh, but you, you do not automatically get that, uh, in a, uh, in a civil case. Um, no. so <laughs> yeah. No, you know. and
0: I still don't understand how you can seek relief for something that hasn't happened yet. Right. <laughs> I mean, we saw that in all those election lawsuits, Trump asking for relief before anything bad happened. Uh, but, you know, he's alleging, I guess, that the investigations themselves are, w- are what's bad for him.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like I want to put Trump's lawyers in touch with our very well-meaning critics who were, you know, further to the left uh, who have said, I don't understand why nothing has happened yet. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like in, somewhere in between nothing has happened and, uh, you know, you have destroyed my business career uh, I think the truth lies. And, uh, you know, hopefully hopefully that's that's where we are.
0: Yeah. And I mean, she files a lawsuit and they get d- d- fined and they have to shut down. Then maybe he can file a suit saying, hey, you did that because you hate me. Yeah. Uh, it still wouldn't win. But, I mean, at least it makes a little more sense than, hey, you're about to do something that... Bec- be- I, I, I can't even come up with a good analogy. Anyway. Um, yeah. The chances of success of this, I, I'm assuming, are negative. Uh, it, it
1: it is uh, it is incredibly rare to see a lawsuit that will not survive a motion to dismiss, right? Because, again, remember that. Look, I can let, let me craft a lawsuit that uh, is utterly without merit, but that would survive a motion to dismiss right now. And that is, um, Allison, I'm about to sue you for trespass onto my property. And I'm going to allege in my lawsuit on or about uh, December 20th, 2021, uh, you uh, snuck over my gate uh, and trespassed onto my property and destroyed a bunch of stuff and then left. Uh, and I am demanding uh, that uh, you uh, d- damages in the form of uh, the, the harm that you wreaked on my property. And your response is I didn't, I, are you kidding me? December 20th, I wasn't anywhere near your house. Uh, and uh, and the courts would say, well, you know what? That's what discovery is for. Let's figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Introduce all the evidence that you can that would prove uh, that Allison was on your property on December 20th. Now, as it turns out, um, you were not anywhere near my property <laughs> on December 20th. So you would win, uh, but you would survive the motion to dismiss. And so I just want to point out, when I say this lawsuit Uh, Indeed, all or virtually all of it uh, is designed uh, not to survive a motion to dismiss. I'm telling you, it has less merit. It is pled more poorly than my imaginary lawsuit against Allison.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. Um, It might be able to delay her filing a suit or him being deposed. No,
1: I, I don't think it will do anything. I think that this is. You know, you, you talked about on today's uh, Daily Beans, the sort of, you know, whiff of desperation around Donald Trump. And I think this is a strong indication of that.
0: Mm. Agreed. Um, all right. Well, hey, we've got uh, more to come. We've got uh, we want to we could do like a refresher on filibuster rules now that, um, you know, we're we're working on voting rights and the whole mansion thing. Um, and so I think we're going to talk about that after this quick break. Is that right, Andrew? Is yep. that what we're doing? Cool. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's Allison. And today's Clean Up on i 45 is brought to you by Policy Genius. Are your home and auto policies almost up for renewal? Are you trying to get rid of USAA because they advertise on Tucker Carlson? Well, let's let Policy Genius look for a lower rate for you. Just head to policygenius.com, answer a few questions about yourself and your property, and Policy Genius will show you price estimates for policies that fit your needs and help you also understand your options. The Policy Genius team can look for ways to save you more money too, and if they find a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. They do it for you. Policy Genius has saved customers an average of $1,250 a year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance before. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. And here's the cool part. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. So you can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step of the way until you're covered. Policy Genius doesn't add extra fees or sell your info to third parties. They have thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance. So head to policygenius.com to get your free home and auto insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody. Welcome back. So the big political news this week is a showdown between Biden and Manchin, the Joes, the Battle of the Joes, with Manchin saying he will not vote for the Build Back Better Act. And not just that. He went on Fox News to surprise everybody with it. And the Biden administration suggesting a pivot to voting rights. And a lot of people are wondering, why does the Senate sometimes require 60 votes and sometimes not? So we're here to explain exactly what a filibuster is. And you can share out this episode with friends who are looking to figure all of this procedural stuff out.
1: Yeah, so we begin with Article One of the Constitution, right? That sets out the respective powers of the various branches of government. Article One is about the legislature, the Senate and the House, right? And Section 5, Clause 2, put a pin in that, says that each chamber has the authority to determine its own rules and proceedings, right? So you don't need to pass a law, right? The House sets it, its rules without input from the Senate or the President. The Senate sets its rules without input from the House or the president, and neither of them, outside of a couple of extreme examples that are not relevant here, um, like violating substantive rights or something, uh, none of those internal procedures of either chamber of Congress are reviewable by the courts. Hmm.
0: Yeah, equal branch thing. Yep. So we have the standing rules of the Senate and rule five specifies that those, quote, shall continue from one Congress to the next Congress until they are changed as provided in these rules. And Rule 22 says you need two thirds of Congress, that's 67 votes, to change the rules. So how is it possible that the Republicans change the rules to get rid of the filibuster in 2017 for the Supreme Court nominees with way fewer than 67 <laughs> votes?
1: Yeah, that has to do with a very arcane rule of procedure, right? That in some ways, dates back to the founding of the country. And it's this. In the House of Representatives, every single bill gets a governing rule for that bill and for any amendments as to how long you can spend debating that bill itself and all of those amendments. Um, That's House Rule 9B. And after that time for debate is over, you get to move the previous question. And that means, okay, Debate's over. Time for a final up or down vote on the bill. That's rule 13. So at the end of the day, every bill gets resolved in some way.
0: Yeah. And and those are the two major procedural differences between the House and the Senate. Right. In the Senate, there's no previous question. Right. So no senator has the right to cut off debate and debate has no preset time limit. And I think the idea at the founding of the country was that the Senate would just wait until every senator got to say as much as they wanted to say on every bill. Of course, that was a little different with 13 states in 1789 (laughs) as opposed to 50 states today.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And look, we went over a century. We went 130 years with a Senate with literally no rules about this, right? Any one senator could just keep talking and talking and never shut up. That's literally how the word filibuster entered our lexicon, right? To speak just to fill time, right? Um, That was bad when the country was an agrarian nation, Uh, It became interminable when we were an industrial superpower post-World War I. So in 1917, the Senate amended its rules via that two-thirds vote that you described to add Rule 22, which is called a motion for cloture.
0: And this is what people think of as the filibuster rule today. Yeah, Uh, Senate Rule 22 allows the Senate to invoke cloture and cut off debate, cut it off. Originally, it required a two-thirds vote. That would be 67 votes today, not just 60. And no matter how much more partisan you think things are now, and you're right, it's always been a challenge to get two-thirds of anyone to agree on anything. So, (laughs) literally, there were only four successful cloture votes. Four. In the Senate, from 1919 to 1959, that's 40 years. Yeah, one every decade. About uh, the Senate amended. No, I, I'm not saying one every happened every decade. But that's the no, average. no, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Senate amended Rule 22 in 1975 to lower the threshold from two-thirds to three-fifths. That's the 60-vote requirement we have today. So, this isn't a storied old tradition dating back to the founding of the Republic. This is a procedural rule that's less than 50 years old.
1: Yeah. And, and it's worth emphasizing that the filibuster has exploded beyond all historical bounds, right? In 1917, if you'd asked people, hey, does it require a two thirds vote to pass any law? They would have said, well, are, are you crazy? That's silly. It takes 50% plus one. It's just, And the vice president can break any ties. And, and, and the reason was that lots of people who opposed a bill on the merits nevertheless voted in the spirit of the cloture vote, right? That is, look, uh, when debate's really over, right? Like you've exhausted it. There's nothing else to say. It's time to vote. Let's not pretend like we need more time to debate, right? Let's just get to it. And so people would vote for cloture, but against the final bill, right? And the numbers bear this out. Prior to 1970, there were single-digit cloture motions every two-year session of Congress, right? Some years had none, right? This is literally, like, the Senate just agreed, like, okay, it's time to vote on this, right? Like, during the 50s and 60s, there were prominent and some nasty filibusters over civil rights legislation, but you still had fewer than 10 per session. That's less than five per year on average. That exploded to 30 to 40 during the Nixon and 40 years, 40 to 50 during the Reagan administration, and about 75 per session, under Bill Clinton, uh, which went down actually into the 60s during the George W. Bush administration.
0: Yeah. And then it went completely off the rails when McConnell issued his failed promise to make Barack Obama a one term president. Yeah. That first Obama Senate, the 110th Congress from 2007 to 2008, saw the number of cloture motions more than double to almost 140, 139. Stayed crazily high and hit a maximum of 252 <laughs> In 2013 to 2014, that's more than the number of cloture motions in all of the first 53 years added together. Uh, obviously, the filibuster has been weaponized, so we've both been clear it should go. Right? That's we both think that. But given everything we've discussed, isn't it even harder to amend the rules that requires a 2 vote, 67 votes, than it is to break the filibuster in the
1: first place, which is 60 votes? So you'd think, but like what crazy lawyer procedures can taketh away, they can also giveth. And here, that crazy procedure is even more delightfully lawyer. This is is a fish heads in the basement kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. So the cloture rule is Rule 22. The way around it is Senate Rule 20, which says this. A question of order may be raised at any stage of the proceedings and, unless submitted to the Senate, shall be decided by the presiding officer... Without debate, subject to an appeal to the Senate. And buried in that rule is the implication that you can appeal the decision of the presiding officer. There's a technical motion. Look, this isn't even this technical motion isn't even in the Senate rules. It's older. It comes from Robert's Rules of Order, which comes from feudalism, right? Which comes from 13th century Saxony, right? Like, it it was interpreted by the customary precedents and practices of Senate procedure, which is, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, a 1,441-page document compiled by Floyd M. Riddick, the longest-serving parliamentarian in the history of the Senate. So you know this just tickles all of my law geekery all at once, right? (laughs) That vote, right? which is called appeal from the decision of the chair is subject to a simple majority here's how floyd explains it quote decisions of the chair are subject to appeal and by a majority vote the senate may reverse or overrule any decision by the chair and, and by the <laughs> I way see where this is going yeah this is in a section this is page 146 if you if you want to read floyd's stuff if you're a geek like me on motions that are appropriate under the cloture rule
0: okay all right so how's this work in practice let's see chuck schumer introduces the freedom to vote act uh-huh and after a reasonable debate moves for cloture right. let's say the most evil person alive mitch mcconnell is the presiding officer he's the chair that happens it rotates amongst the senate so after a while schumer moves for cloture the vote comes up 50 50 McConnell says, pursuant to Senate Rule 22, the vote for cloture fails. That's the decision of the chair. Right. Then a senator, like, let's say, Elizabeth Warren, your favorite, Mm -hmm. immediately announces an appeal from the decision of the chair. She says, I appeal from the decision of the chair a cloture vote isn't appropriate when the topic of debate is voting rights. And then on the basis of that argument, it goes back to the Senate and the same 50 votes and Kamala Harris is there to cast the tie-breaking 51st vote, can say, yep, Mitch McConnell got it wrong. Rule 22 definitely doesn't apply when we're debating voting rights, and that's the decision of the
1: uh, of the majority vote, right? That's exactly right, right? So 50 plus 1% can overrule 60 votes. So that all stems from the basic principle in Article 1, Section 5, Clause 2, that I told you to put a pin in, that says the Senate can make its own rules. And we know this works Because this is how the Senate made exceptions to the filibuster for judicial nominees. That's how we wound up with just 51 votes being necessary for Kavanaugh, for Gorsuch, for Barrett, right? And the Senate could theoretically appeal from the decision of the chair for literally anything, right? The only question is, and I cannot stress this enough, will 50 plus one tiebreaker senators vote for it?
0: And there's no punishment, right? There's no law or procedure or rule that this breaks. Nope. Nope. And there's nothing to stop a future Congress from undoing it, from appealing from the decision of the chair saying, no, you need 60 votes after all. Nope. So it's literally just does Joe Manchin want to pass voting rights? Yep. And the Supreme Court can't pull any shenanigans or anything?
1: I I mean, look, I don't wanna I don't wanna say that the howler monkey contingent can't find a new way to debase itself, right? But the law here is super clear, and I don't think the Supreme Court would want the unintended consequences of ruling that the judiciary can second guess how the Senate interprets its own rules.
0: But unless they do pass voting rights and then it's challenged in court and it goes up, yeah, it's got on, it again.
1: That, that, that is different than <laughs> ruling on the nuclear option to break the filibuster. That would be on the merits of the legislation <laughs> itself, which I am terrified as to, you know, how the the anti-democratic Supreme Court is going to try and gut that yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, they did it to the other Voting Rights Act. Yep. So, yep. so there you go. The filibuster is a function of the cloture requirement. It's relatively new. It's only been taken to insane levels since the Obama administration. And the only question is, do you want to continue to abide by this rule that obviously benefits the party of obstruction? Minority rule. So yep. we will see what happens. Indeed we will. All right, everybody, we got comings and goings right after this. Stick around. Hey, everybody, welcome back. It's time for comings and goings. But first, I have a couple quick cleanup items this week, Andrew. Ooh. Pentagon officials, who I'm very mad at right now for the NDAA and gutting the Military Justice Act. But anyway, Pentagon officials are issuing new detailed rules about prohibiting service members from actively engaging in extremist activities. The new guidelines come nearly a year after some current and former service members participated in the attack on the Capitol.
1: Yeah. Senior defense officials tell the Associated Press that fewer than 100 military members are known to have been involved in substantiated cases of extremist activity in the past year. But they warn that the number may grow given recent spikes in domestic violent extremism, particularly among veterans.
0: Yeah. Yep. And officials say the new policy doesn't largely change what is prohibited. It's more of an effort to make sure troops are clear Mm. on what they can and can't do while still protecting their First Amendment free speech rights. And uh, for the first time, it's far more specific about social media.
1: Yeah. So the new policy lays out in detail the banned activities, right, the prohibited activities, which range from advocating terrorism, supporting the overthrow of the government to fundraising or rallying on behalf of an extremist group or liking or reposting extremist views on social media.
0: That's interesting. Even just liking. Yeah. Um, And these rules also specify that commanders must determine two things in order for someone to be held accountable. First, that the action was an extremist activity as defined in the rules. And second, that the service member actively participated in that prohibited activity.
1: Yeah. And that that is standard language in 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 any kind of rulemaking. Um, In other news, in a major step to fight climate change, the Biden administration is raising vehicle mileage standards to significantly reduce emissions of planet warming greenhouse gases. That is reversing, of course, a Trump era rollback that loosened fuel efficiency standards.
0: Yeah. A final rule issued a couple days ago, Monday, would raise mileage standards starting in 2023 model year cars. Uh, reaching a projected industry-wide target of 40 miles per gallon. 40 miles per gallon by 2026. That's fast. Yeah. And I I, I like this. The new standard is 25% higher than a rule finalized by the Trump administration last year and 5% higher than a proposal by the Environmental Protection Agency in August.
1: And doesn't that respond to the, like, think of how much it costs to fill up your tank at the pump? Anyway, Mm -hmm. very good news that the administration is continuing to do what it can Without Congress uh, to uh, to try and fight the climate crisis, it would be nice if we could get some legislation in there as well. And with that, uh, let's take a look at some uh, comings and goings.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. While the roadblock continues in confirming nominees, President Biden continues to move expeditiously to fill the pipeline with new names. Announced this week, Paul Montero, nominee for director of the Community Relations Service at the Department of Justice. Laura Ross, nominee for member of the board of directors of the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Four USDA state directors for rural development, David Baker, Betsy Dirksen, uh, actually Betsy Dirksen-Londegrand, and uh, Brian Murray and our Lisa Armstrong. So that's uh, USDA directors for rural development. And that's going to be really important in the coming, as as we start to expand broadband and do all that stuff. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And and related that the president named four state executive directors for the Farm Service Agency, that is Doris Washington, Scott Halpin, Sherry Hamill, and Benancio Cano Jr., as well as a uh, Housing and Urban Development Regional Administrator in Dominique Jackson, and a FEMA Regional Administrator in Andrea Spallars. So welcome aboard to all of you. Yes, welcome
0: aboard. And uh, in some sort of a I don't know, backroom deal, we were able to get some more federal judges pushed through and we have broken the record held by Ronald Reagan for number of <laughs> judges confirmed in the first year of the presidency.
1: I, I That is truly amazing given the headwinds. So, mm. yes, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you called attention to that
0: yas because i mean back then when he had like 17 or 18 you know uh, filibuster things we you know we we're up to 252 so you know considering like you said the headwinds the fact that we've had to deal with Cruz and holly and all this uh awful stuff uh, it's, it's he's doing his best he can to reshape those courts so that is our show thank you everyone for listening and a special thanks again to our subscribers our patrons um Whew. who who make this show possible and uh, this was uh, I, I really I look forward to see to seeing the reply to that lawsuit.
1: <laughs> me too. And, and everybody out there, to all of our listeners, uh, have, have a lovely holiday. Uh, have a Merry Christmas if you support that. If you're traveling, please, please, please be safe uh, and, uh, and you know listen, listen to us while you do that. and we will see you. Next Wednesday. Uh, until then, I have been Andrew Torres. I've been Allison Gill, and this is Clean Up on Aisle Forty Five.
0: I thought I was going to say the Forty Five.
1: <laughs> How I <laughs> snuck in there? This is Clean Up on yeah. Aisle Forty Five. <laughs> Can I? You're keeping all this on the outro. <laughs>
0: we'll see you next week. Bye bye.